Good morning. If you've been following our church's sermon series, I think most of you have, we've been in First uh, and Second Samuel since late spring of last year. And uh, we've been following the development of the nation of Israel from a theocracy where God uh, was in charge uh, directly of the nation and using his priests and prophets to uh, into a monarchy where God chooses a king and uh, the king leads the nation. The twofold purpose of the king uh, has been to protect and enlarge the national borders of the nation of Israel and or of any king and to judge uh, civil matters, uh, internal matters in the courts. Thus far, we have seen God use his two chosen kings, Saul and David, in this capacity, uh, much the same way that he used Joshua when the people of Israel entered uh, into the promised land following their exodus from Egypt. God has accomplished his purposes primarily through warfare that he has commanded according to his perfect will. Today's 2 Samuel 10 text really marks the last passage in this series where warfare is the prominent feature of the chapter. This is probably welcome news for most of us. While we may see warfare as sometimes necessary and even God-ordained, we certainly live in a time, uh, a period, and a culture where we prefer the path of peace and diplomacy. So, we've been conflicted, maybe even troubled, at the large amount of bloodshed in this sermon series. Of course, this distaste and hesitancy to acknowledge any war as good is not unique to us here in this church. Just like just last week, Pamela and I attended a church in Mendocino where we have a little vacation home nearby. The pastor there talked about Jesus' message being one of peace, acceptance, and nonviolence. He used those very words. He admitted that he was not comfortable with the image of a conquering Christ. Yet he is a conquering Christ. Here in Auburn, our men's Bible study has been working through the book of Revelation on Friday mornings in Missions Coffee. We've also had to wrestle with this issue as we have seen that the second coming of Christ is very different from his first coming. It's true. His first coming, he came nonviolently as a sacrificial lamb, shedding his own blood to atone for our sins and bringing peace between our sinful selves and our sinless God. In his second coming, Jesus will come as a triumphant warrior, culminating justice through the shedding of a host of others' blood and the eradication of the evil one. We've watched a similar transformation in this sermon series as David, uh, first as a young shepherd and musician, later becomes a great warrior. David would have fully understood when he was anointed as Israel's future king that he was being selected for a highly nationalistic, warring role. It's what a king was. 
So it should be no surprise that this is how David saw himself. You see, it's the down button, right? Yeah. No? Oh, she turned it off. That's good battery-saving strategies there, Murray. There we go. Okay. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. In the Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker tells Yoda that he is looking for a great warrior. Yoda chuckles and says, <laughs> Wars not make one great. <laughs> Yoda is obviously not a careful reader of Scripture. Before we dive into today's text, I want to remind us all that God is the main character in the Bible, even in Esther, where he's never mentioned. He is the main character, the one who the whole Bible is all about. His message to us as the main character is consistently, trust me, I am trustworthy. It's on the, just got, I'm parched here. Thank you for cleaning up though, Jake. The supporting characters in today's historical account are David and his two nephews, the sons of his sister Zeruiah. Joab, the elder, is the commander of David's army. And Abishai is the commander of the three mighty warriors and David's elite 30 mighty men. It's true, these supporting characters don't always get it right. But in this chapter, they all do. Before we look at our text, let's pray together. Good morning, Lord. You are our Lord, and it is a good morning because you have made it so. You are trustworthy, wholly worthy of our trust. Help us to trust you. Please reveal yourself to us clearly today as we look at your word. Amen. Please consider getting so much more out of our time together as an active listener as we go through this chapter by following along in either a church Bible under the chair in front of you uh, in your own Bible, or on a silenced device. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, the same version of the church Bibles under the chairs. 2 Samuel chapter 10 is on page 243 of those church Bibles. The prequel that sets... The chapter is somewhat divided into three sections. The prequel that sets up the main event... Then, uh, well, the main event. And then, that's what Curtis read. And then the sequel that reapplies that focus from the main event in a follow-up event. 
We'll read it all. Let's begin reading at verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Recall as recently as chapter 8, just two weeks ago, that we saw David had prevailed upon the Ammonites in battle, making them, once again, subordinate. This was typically done through a treaty as it was commanded by God in his instructions through Moses to the Israelites uh, as they were getting ready to be led by Joshua in Deuteronomy 20. I'm going to begin at verse 10. You don't have to turn there. In Deuteronomy 20. This is God speaking. God directed. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So that would apply to the Ammonites. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance within Israel's borders, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Hard words to read. I think it's important to stop and remind ourselves, though, that war was God's tool, His choice his command. Otherwise, it's easy to focus on the sickening horrors of warfare and condemn it. We dare not go there. To the extent that we conclude these wars are wrong or were wrong, well, to that extent, we assign error to God, which is ridiculous. Rather, Inasmuch as we might have trouble seeing the rightness in war, so we must admit that we don't completely understand, but that we accept God's choice. It just makes me so nervous when we, myself or any of you, assert the rightness of our own judgment in the place of admitting our lack of understanding while clinging to the rightness of God and his word. Continuing in today's text, let's pick it up at the latter part of verse 2. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to search, or to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. A crown prince 
thrust suddenly onto the throne, listens to his contemporaries, takes their bad advice, and brings hardship on the nation. Kind of reminds me of King Solomon. What did his son Rehoboam do? Recall, once Solomon had died? Yep. He listened to his contemporaries, ignored his deceased father's advice, wisest man that ever lived, and led badly. An interesting aside here, when Nahash besieged the town of Jabesh in 1 Samuel 11, we sat here in these chairs and studied that, he offered peace to the Israelites only if they agreed to having every male in the city have their right eye gouged out. Remember? So that all of Israel would be disgraced. So this act of Hanan, here in today's text, designed to disgrace the king, and therefore all of Israel, was right out of his father's playbook. The apple didn't fall far from that tree. Continuing with our text at verse 5. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. To the ancient Hebrew man, a full, untrimmed beard earned the wearer the status of manhood. By committing such a highly insulting and inflammatory act upon the king's representatives of having that symbol shaved away and their garments cut to make them indecent, Hanan had just declared war on Israel. These shameful deeds would have been understood to be equal to committing them against the king himself. Ammon was the kingdom due east of Jerusalem. Jericho is a border town whose walls collapsed under Joshua's attack, recall, and it had not yet been rebuilt. Jericho lay between Jerusalem and Ammon, just within Israel's eastern border. Okay, thus ends the setup. On to the main event, starting at verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians, your Bible may say Arameans, same people, of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Maacah were themselves in the open country. The parallel account of this chapter in 1 Chronicles 19 is almost identical to this account. Setting them side by side very close. But we do learn in the Chronicles account that Hanum hired all of these Arameans to the north with a thousand talents of silver. My Bible footnote tells me that that's 38 tons, which is 76,000 pounds of silver. Today, we value silver by the ounce. With 16 ounces to the pound, Ammon hired Aram, or Syria, with 1,216,000 ounces of silver. I looked it up yesterday. 
because when I first wrote this manuscript a week ago, it was a different amount. Yesterday, silver is valued at $23.15 per ounce. So that was $28,150,400, roughly. Okay, here comes Joab. Now, Joab is a lot like us. Sometimes he has done well, and sometimes he has done badly. Eventually, Solomon will have him executed for treasonous crimes. But at this particular moment, Joab did well, really well. Picking it up at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Going back to your high school literature classes, a further journey for some of us than others. Do you remember the term foreshadowing? This is where the author gives a hint to what will happen later in the story. I think the historian who wrote Samuel employs foreshadowing right here. If we had just read, we don't, but if we had just read, Joab turned to his brother and said, we've got this. We are skilled warriors and we will prevail by our strength alone. We would all accurately say under our breath, uh-oh, stand by for a humiliating loss. But since we read Joab and Abishai as skilled warriors with a proven military strategy, trusted God to do what was good in his sight, well, we say something entirely different under our breath, don't we? We know it's not about the numbers. It's about the main character of the story. Who is he? God. What does God want us to do? Have faith in him and trust him. I mentioned it was a proven military strategy. Recall when Joshua divided his forces to defeat the city of Ai in Joshua chapter 8. It was God that told Joshua to set an ambush and fight the battle on two fronts. They were successful. Recall when Gideon divided his forces into three companies and surrounded the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. He was successful. Recall when Abimelech divided his troops into three companies to destroy Shechem with multiple fronts in Judges chapter 9. He was successful. Recall when King Saul divided his forces into three companies when he marched all night to rescue the town of Jabesh that I mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 11. He was successful. So with such a proven military strategy and with such experienced soldiers, why was there even a need to trust God? I mean, once we know how to handle a situation, we can leave God out of it, right? You know, saving, reaching out to him for the really bad situations that we can't handle on our own. We know that's not right. 
don't we? In Hebrews 11.6, we read, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We know how God felt that about Abraham when Abraham believed God's promises in Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God wants us to trust him. In Psalm 78, we see the reverse is also true. God is actually angry with us when we do not trust him. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. The New International Version uses the word furious. Not only is God furious in the face of our unbelief, but he may even create hardship in our lives to cause us to trust him. In that same psalm, verse 34, when he, God, killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Of course, this need to trust God applies to warfare as well. Going back to Deuteronomy 20 that I had read earlier, look at what verses 1 through 4 say. That's a lot. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Okay. Back to Joab and Abishai and our text. Verse 13 is where we left off. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Predictable. God is... Trustworthy. Thus ends the main event. On to the sequel. Verse 15. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a deezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. 
The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots. The Chronicles account says 7,000 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The Euphrates River is way north of Israel. You won't even find it on most of your Bible maps that have Israel as their focus. There's only a couple of things that I want to point out in this last section of today's text. Our main character is not mentioned, but which supporting character is present? Do you see him? It's David. Look back at verse 7. On hearing this, David sent Joab. David didn't go on the previous campaign. He did go on this one. I'm not really sure the significance of this, uh, except to say that this week's tragic Excuse me, except to say that in next week's tragic events, we read in chapter 11, verse 1, a little spoiler alert, but David remained in Jerusalem. Much later, in 2 Samuel 18, we see David's commanders insisting that he not accompany them into battle anymore because he is so valuable. David's life as an active warrior is coming to a close. Speaking of later on, we know that Solomon, not yet born, went on to become king. He was described as the wisest man to have ever lived up to that moment, having received his wisdom from God. Solomon left his son very good advice. We call it the book of Proverbs. In that book, he shared his God-given wisdom. One of the certain parts of Solomon's tutoring as the crown prince would have been the careful, detailed study of his nation's history with, of course, emphasis on military history since he would be their military leader. So Solomon certainly knew about these events in 2 Samuel 10 and how his experienced cousins, Joab and Abishai, accomplished a victory when confronted on both sides by not only using a proven military strategy, but by looking to God. I think that could have even influenced Solomon's writing of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. That was the repeated lyric in the song that, by uh, Dion DiMucci that was played during our giving of grace right before the sermon. Way out in front, the most frequently used word for sin in the New Testament, there's about 30 of them, but the most frequently used one, way out in front, is hamartia, which means missing the mark. 
It's a very visual term. Picture an archer or someone who's throwing a javelin, aiming at a target, and missing. In our lives, we aim for the bullseye, whatever that may be, don't we? Of course, we don't always hit it. When we miss it in our spiritual lives, or when the target is living in obedience with God's word, it's called sin. Looking at this proverb from King David's son, there are only two options given in verse 5. Either we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, hitting the bullseye, or we lean on our own understanding, missing the mark. When we hit the bullseye, trusting God, we invite his blessing. When we miss the mark, trusting ourselves, we invite God's fury. Remember? But how can we, how can we remember to trust God? When we are using a proven strategy and we have the personal experience as Joab and Abishai did and had, how can we remember to trust God and hit the bullseye? We know he's trustworthy. But we often miss the mark by powering through, simply leaning on our own understanding. I know I do. How can we remember to trust God? Well, fortunately... David gives us the formula over and over again in the Psalms. He tells us to recount, recall, rehearse God's works. Not only do we need to recall God's works, but we need to pass that awareness on to others as Solomon did. We must be in his word regularly, talk about his deeds often, and we can even look for visual reminders to trust him. Like, remember those what would Jesus do bracelets that were out years ago? They were pretty popular. We look at them and remind us about the things of God and would lead us to trust him. Well, I've taken a drink of water a couple of times from this cup while preaching. Did you notice? Actually, you really had to notice because Jake went and hit it on me. So I had to go find it. Product placement. What company makes this cup? Mm. <laughs> the congregation comes alive. In and out. It <laughs> is the most alive moment of the sermon. All right. Obviously, we have fans in the audience. All right. In the congregation. All right, uh, did you know that the founders of In-N-Out were believers? And that the granddaughter who now runs the company, Lindsay Snyder, is also a Christian? She has not only kept up her uncle's previous activity of printing Bible verses on some of their paper goods, or not verses, but the references, but she has added many more. On the underside of the shake cup, the green one, because most of them are red, right? The shake cup is green. On the underside of the green one, you want to see? 
Right there. Isn't that great? I mean, it's subtle, yet potentially powerful as a reminder to us to hit the bullseye of trust. And, as it turns out, the shake isn't bad either. So, anytime you drive by and in and out, you can be reminded to trust God. And maybe even stop and have a yummy shake. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, please help us when surrounded by the enemy and even in our less dramatic daily, hourly challenges to hit our bullseye by trusting in you and not leaning on our own understanding. Help us to submit to you in all, all our ways. Please make our path straight. And thank you for the example of three of your supporting characters in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.